Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Golden Globe and Emmy Award winning actor Damian Lewis and author Ben McIntyre about espionage drama Aspire Among Friends, which this week heralded the launch of new streamer ITVX. And from fifth season, co-founder and chief executive Chris Rice about what's next for the company formerly known as Endeavour Content and the future of the TV business. UK public broadcaster ITV this week launches its new combined ad-supported and subscription video-on-demand service ITVX, featuring over 10,000 hours of programming, including more than 250 movies and 200 TV shows. Leading the lineup is Cold War thriller A Spy Among Friends, starring and exec produced by Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning actor Damian Lewis, alongside Guy Pearce and Anna Maxwell-Martin. Based on the New York Times best-selling book written by Ben McIntyre, the six-part drama is produced by ITV Studios and distributed by Sony Pictures Television. Lewis, Maxwell Martin and McIntyre spoke to Stephen Armstrong about the show at C21's Content London last week, together with exec producer Alexander Carey and Sony Exec Vice President of Drama Development Lauren Smith. Thank you very much for joining us on this afternoon session. A case study of... A Spy Among Friends, which is the investigation, dramatic investigation into the fleeing of Kim Philby and the things that gave rise to with Nicholas Elliott. Um, Nicholas Elliott, in fact. So um, this comes, Ben McIntyre, from your book initially. Could you perhaps briefly set the scene and then maybe about how you and Alex got together to get well, started? Well, with pleasure. I mean, the, the book actually comes from John le Carre originally, um, who was a friend of mine, David Cornwall, and about 15 years ago, 12 years ago, I was walking with him in Hampstead Heath, and I'd run out of books. I didn't know what to write. Uh, And so I said to him, David, what is the best untold story from the Cold War? And he immediately said, it's the relationship between Kim Philby and Nicholas Elliott. And of course, I'd never heard of Nicholas Elliott at that point. But Nicholas Elliott was a close friend of David Cornwall's, and he knew him quite well. And, he, uh, and it just unlocked this extraordinary story because actually there were quite a lot of traces of Eliot. It was, it was putting together his life was much, wasn't nearly as hard as I thought. And what the book turned out to be and what the, the series has brilliantly captured is this, is this is a story of the Cold War, but it's not a story about sort of raw politics in the Cold War. It's a story about very intimate betrayal between two men who were as close as they could possibly be, really, that they'd kind of grown up in the same world, the same class, they'd been to the same schools and the same clubs and the same universities, and, and they sort of trusted each other completely, except that one, for an entire lifetime, was betraying the other. And so, and then Alex and I met, can you remember, Alex, maybe five years ago, four years ago? Yeah. Um, and I was a huge fan of Homeland, which I completely loved. Um, and it was just a brilliant fit. I mean, it's been, and it's been incredibly good fun ever since. I mean, I've, I've had not very much to do with the writing of it, but, but, but Alex very kindly let me look at the, 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 the screenplay, um, and I had a few very minor suggestions, but it's, a, it's an astonishing achievement. So, Alex, what, what grabbed you about the book when you... First oh, well, I'd read the book before. It was even brought to me sort of in the business, um, and uh, was a fan. I've been a fan of Ben's for years. My dad put me onto Ben. Uh, and start, starting with Agent Zigzag, and then, and then Spy Among Friends was the second one I read, of, I think, or the third of, uh, that I, of his books. And we were very much enamoured of that when we were doing Homeland. 
And we were often wondering, you know, what was that four days in Beirut like between these two men? So it was sort of sitting there, and then, and then I got uh, I got a call from uh, from Ben's um, manager asking me if I'd be interested in adapting it. He had no idea I'd ever read it, and so I said uh, I'd love to if I could figure out a way to do it. Because what I didn't want to do is, is just regurgitate the book because the book is so brilliant, and I didn't want to be. So I wanted to, to see if I could. Add, add or expand on it and uh, yeah so I went from there and what was there a thing that you brought to it that made you think it would what was the key to unlocking it I guess? Uh, the key to unlocking it was uh, was inventing um, the character of Lily Thomas played by beautifully by Anna Damien you you're in this in a producer capacity as well as an actor and what what brought you into this as a as a partnership rather than just a show and perform well, I've, I've got an almost identical answer, which is someone brought me the book, which is Alex, and I too had already read it, because I too was already a fan of Ben's, <laughs> and um, had actually read um, Agent Zigzag as Book of the Week on Radio 4 some years ago, and um, had always had my eye on um, playing Agent Zigzag, um, and then it got swallowed up by some studio and sat there for 10 years. Um, probably quite frustrating for Ben. But, um, uh, but so Alex came to me after our relationship on Home... We've been mates since Homeland, and he just said, um, I want you to play one of these parts and will you produce it? And um, uh, I don't think we really knew which part I would play initially, except that Philby is a charismatic um, sociopath, and I, I've, I'm playing one already. So uh, in another show that I do, and, and I thought it was more interesting as well just to, to explore the guy that no one had ever heard of, simply, as well. I was interested in this best friend and what it was like to be... You know, we, we came to use the word cuckolded during production. It's such, it, was, it was a platonic romance, but such a deep, intense relationship... Um, lived out in extremists, constantly in secrecy in the intelligence world, in a heightened, sexy uh, uh, world all the time. And uh, these relationships were deep and profound as a result of their shared experience. So I was interested in what it would be like to just find out after 30 years that you had been lied and to and cheated on by your best mate. Um, especially as it transpired that actually Nick Elliott time and again was the person that facilitated Philby's escape. Every time the walls were closing in on him and intelligence seemed to be amounting to him being caught, it was, it was oddly, it was, it was always Elliot who would just sort of say, oh, no, 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 he's, he's a wonderful man, this, that and the other. And then finally set up this job for him at The Observer in Beirut to help him escape the clutches of the intelligence services where he was for how many years? Two, two, two or three years? Nearly, nearly more, actually. It was nearly four years. Nearly there. four years. And then, of course, he was the one sent out to interrogate him and bring him home when there was you know, overwhelming evidence that he was, in fact, had been spying uh, for the Russians for the for the 30 years, when we have this delicious four days in Beirut, which is essentially the sort of the nexus of our piece. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, anyway, it's a brilliant book, and Alex did an amazing and brilliant job with, with adapting it. Anna, you're, you're kind of the yang to 
or Ying to David Yang. I don't know which First way it works. Yang. Yang? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yin. Um, Yin Yang? Yeah. And so Lily's Yang. there for a purpose, a narrative purpose. What, who is she and what's she like? And how does, what, what does that show us about? MI5. So she's sent to sort of um, her little chat with Nicholas Elliott and find out what went on in Beirut and get to the bottom of that, essentially. Yeah. And she's kind of in, it's clear that she's very contrasting kind of in style and in almost everything, really. We get to see a bit of her home life later on. Yeah, and it's pretty sexy. Uh, it's not. Um, yeah, she's, she's a contrast to them, definitely. I mean, I sort of don't want to go on and on about class in this piece. It's not so massively prevalent for me, but it, she's, she's the antithesis of them. I mean, she's female, she's from a very different background, a sort of socio-economic background. So uh, she has no privilege, no sense of that. So she is where she is because she's worked hard and is good at her job. So, Lauren, this came to you because you started, a, like, a long-term relationship with Alex. So how did that, uh, how did that all come to We've you? We've had a very long-term relationship. <laughs> uh, no, Alex and I have worked together, truly, for a very long time. And so when he, he had been very busy... Uh, for years, and finally, when he became available, uh, we, you know, wanted to bring him into Sony, and this was the first thing he brought to us and said, you know, I want to do this. And I had worked with Damien many years ago, also, and it just was like one of those perfect storms. And Alex is actually who introduced me, you know, to the world of Ben, and now I just keep reading book after book after book, and yeah, I am a true crime kind of junkie and so any of these books that when you read Ben's books if these stories weren't true you you truly would not believe them each story is crazier than the next and with Spy as everybody has already said what is so great about it is you're not even really focused on the fact that these were two spies you are focused on this love story and and this friendship and you think about the huge betrayal that went on between countries but you're not even thinking about that. You're thinking about these two men. And, you know, when we develop, we look for amazing characters. And you don't get any better than the three actors we had. It was literally like watching a master class. I'll say as well, uh, when, when I did come to, go, go, come to Sony with this project, you know, the sort of Sony's thing was, uh, they said to me was, you know, we like to bring people in who are going to create shows and we, in, and we really want to support their vision. Well, that's, that's, that, saying that to a writer in Hollywood is a bit like saying the check is in the mail. However, <laughs> these guys from the very beginning let me do what I wanted to do. And uh, usually there's a contentious relationship uh, with a studio which, you know, gets tangled up in notes and micromanagement and all the rest of it. So, so, but on this project, uh, there has been none of that. It's been a collaborative uh, uh, relationship, and I would say, and I, I wouldn't want people to take this the wrong way, but Sony's had a very light touch. It's been a really, really good experience because it's allowed us, us two, really, uh, and Nick Murphy, um, to make the show, who directed it, to make the show we wanted to make. So if the end result, this is the first time I've in the business for me, if the end result is is uh, a, a not a success or a failure, um, it's that's, not our fault. that's on us. That's no, no it literally is. <laughs> that's literally on me. 
uh, and it it was that relationship. So they were true to their word from the very beginning. It was that relationship all the way through to the last mix of the last episode. And it's been been really, really good. And I think that that's the way, it feels like that's the way it should be done. And for both of you, really, Damon and Alex, the the way the show is and the, the vision that you had in one sense, it is, as you say, it's a love story and it's got a very international, um, eternal kind of theme to it. But it's also incredibly, what you've produced as a show is a very, very vivid portrayal of a particular British time, particular British group of people, I suppose. And, and in a world of international co-productions, that sometimes feels like it might be quite risky. So what was the, what, you know, you, had, you chose to tell this story in a very particular, almost Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of set. It feels like the 1970s in a way. You or, mean Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy in terms of the... The, the 70s Alec Guinness yeah. one, not the... Um, um, middle-aged white men sitting in rooms talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of radical now. <laughs> um, yeah. It, yeah, the, but I, you know, and, and that was obviously something we, we talked about. It's like, you know, is this the time for that? But, um, you know, we've, we've found that uh, the... The, the, the immediate drama that is presented by the context of the spy espionage industry and the Cold War is compelling in itself. But with what's going on now, it's, it's just, it feels unbelievably contemporary again. And, it, you know, in the same way that the Iraq War was the result of problems that weren't solved in, you know, 1918, 1920, 21 by the Balfour Agreement, nothing has been fixed in Russia and between Russia and Western democracies today because all that stuff was left unresolved, you know, back then. And I think um, that's, that's what gives it a contemporary resonance. Uh, you know, if, if anyone was to think, why is this relevant now? Um, quite apart from the fact that I think, as, as I hope we're all persuading and convincing you of, that the characters themselves and the relationships themselves are compelling enough to, to make it enjoyable, I hope. But also, I think, to make it sellable and to get it made. Um, you can't just do a story about, about uh, privileged you know, posh white men. There has to be an angle on it. And there's definitely, this has an angle and it has a point of view. Without hopefully being editorial, it definitely has an angle and a point of view. Um, uh, about, uh, a, well, I, I, I don't really want to explain what that is because I'm hoping people, it, I'm hoping that it's also the kind of show that, that, that uh, the, where there is audience participation. In other words, you have to think a little bit between the scenes and between the lines and come to your own conclusions, but hopefully that'll be self-evident. I'd also say that male friendship is something that we don't often explore very deeply in, in contemporary life. It is a, it's an extremely contemporary subject. It's a very important subject. Yeah. And this is a male friendship where the emotion brilliantly takes place and is portrayed in the gaps between what they actually say to each other. Mm. I mean, it's an intensely close relationship that is never formally expressed in any tangible way and so it's, it works brilliantly on screen because you can, you can feel it but it's never, it's never stated openly and I think that's a, I think that's a very modern subject actually mm. Mm. And Anna in the um, interrogation scene you're also entering that world but also playing with those silences I mean I, I love the idea that spies really do talk in those kind of pregnant pauses and long uh, this isn't what I quite It's need. just really because I couldn't remember my lines more than <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. I mean, that's part of interrogation, isn't it? You're playing a sort of game of cat and mouse, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, what do you take as her view on the, the Nicholas Elliott's scheme? How does she approach him? Because we see a lot of what she doesn't say. Um, I think it changes. That's the thing that I, I really, really love about the show. Not only what we've just talked about, about the male friendship in it, which is incredibly moving, and it's really interesting to see in Beirut at what point the artifice of friendship, especially male friendship, falls away, and they actually have to be completely sort of um, honest with each other. Um, I think that's a really lovely aspect of the show, but also how the relationship develops between... Lily and Elliot is, was was lovely to act, and you know, with Damien was just um, about how where prejudice sort of falls away, and you meet in the middle and you find a, a middle ground where you maybe both have similar ideas or thoughts about things, and you suspected you never would, and that was really thrilling. Maybe we could briefly talk about Guy Pearce. How did he come on board? He came through Nick. He actually. came through Nick Murphy, who had done... Uh, and Christ his own reputation. Yeah, and a, a Christmas Carol with him. And, um, yeah, Nick, Nick was the one who recommended him and, and, uh, and I think, made the approach. And uh, he, he read it and said he would do it. It was, it was that... I mean, I, when that happened, I thought that we had sort of struck gold. We just got incredibly lucky. You know, you hear these things about movies, you know, things happen the way that they're, they're supposed to happen and all the rest of it. This really was a case of that. And um, he was uh, terrific and a very different type of actor to these two. Very, very <laughs> professional. Sorry, professional. so you want to expand on that? <laughs> <laughs> very professional. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's very... Um, very studied and uh, <laughs> no, he is. He, he, no, these no, guys, no, don't stop. No, <laughs> these guys knew his lines, uh, <laughs> showed up on time. What else? These guys Polite. are very spontaneous Sober. and fun and, and can switch it on and off. He's a very different type of man. He's not fun, he is fun. <laughs> this is indeed my mess. I can do this all night. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Get your coat, love it. <laughs> He's, um, br he's brilliant. Yeah, and yeah. it must really, be. I mean, it really feels great like to it. work with. When you two are really in those scenes, there's a real particular energy to it, which I think is. And it makes you think. It's. I almost think I've seen you act together before, but we never have, have we? Uh, no. There's a kind of joy to that. That. I wasn't thinking whether I had acted with him before. No, we haven't. No. Yeah. No. He. Um, no. He's. He's fabulous. He's fabulous. He's. Yeah. You know, guy. Guy comes with a lot. You know, he comes with Ramsey Street, and he, he comes with you know. Bouncer. Some. Yeah. Huh? Bouncer. Bouncer. Yeah, bouncer. And some big Hollywood movies, and he's and he's he's and he's and he's you know worth every penny if you like. You know, he's you, you don't know what you're going to get sometimes when someone's lived that sort of long varied career, and he came and he just wanted to do the work, and he was just one of us, and he was he was brilliant from the get go, and and brought that fantastic sort of. That subtlety that Guy has in all of his performances, actually, which fed into Philby brilliantly, it feeds into the, that, that, that slight shiftiness that I think must always have been there with Philby whilst everyone was only seeing the charismatic mm. self. And Guy was able just to tap into those uncertainties as well, the ambiguities all, all the way through. I have to say the relationship between them is so good and the thing, when you do a project or you hope you, you start with the writing and you think this is great, this is great writing, I want to do, without 
that, you have really nothing. You can't have good actors, good director, good lighting if you don't have a great script. And then what you hope is that then it will be elevated because the relationships will be there. And they were on this, and I hope... I know the boys definitely delivered that, and that's, I think that's why it's really special. And the ending is just great. I mean, I was very impressed by the way that Guy read up on Philby in, a, in, a, in, an, in an extraordinarily studied. intense way. Studied. Studied it. Yeah. I mean, he... <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he wanted a reading list. I mean, he wanted to read everything he could on, on Philby. And, and, and I think he brilliantly captures that sort of lethal British charm. Yeah. Charm is a word that was much misused, but actually yeah. there's something also very manipulative about charm. Um, and he captures that absolutely brilliantly. Um, I would have read up on Lily if she'd existed. <laughs> well, no, I, know. I, I didn't bother. I know. <laughs> Very short reading this. <laughs> Your favourite sort, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, Lauren, this, so this is, you know, it's a great package, but it starts off on BritBox, which is quite an unusual... So, so yeah. how, what's the process of this arriving? And now, of course, it's the first programme on ITVX, the, the new stream. It's a lot of... Attention, ITV's decided this is a, a symbolic programme. Yeah. It's how they choose to announce their intentions with this new thing. So how did the process of getting it to so where we're about Fox to So had it when Alex came to us, and we needed, uh, we needed a US buyer. And so we, at the time, we went to Charter, um, where Alex and I both, and Damien also all had a relationship with Catherine Pope, who was running Charter at the time. And so it became an international co-production with the two buyers. And now, um, Charter has gone away. Catherine has now come to Sony. And then today was announced that we will be airing in the US on MGM Plus, which had been epics. <laughs> um, so there's you know, been a little bit of musical chairs, but which is rare because most of the time, when that happens with a project, the project doesn't continue. And I think it just, it, it just shows how much people truly love this project. And there's been support you know, on both the international and the domestic side from, from day one. So it was uh, our first co-production like this, uh, in this kind of sense. Um, and it, as Alex was saying, it was seamless. I mean, it was a really, really easy process. I think sometimes one of the questions about how in this very uh, international streamer, you know, co-production world, how one keeps a particular voice, a particular, particularly a, a local voice in a sense. Yeah. And this very much has a local voice, I think. Um, and does it, does it require big name talent to carry stories across borders or? Well, I don't think you, I don't think we could have done this without Alex. Uh, and, and his vision, and I think it was also very important that he is British. Uh, and, you know, he'll tell you there were notes that we gave as Americans that, you know, there were things we just didn't know or understand that... They don't know what legged it means. <laughs> <laughs> we're smarter than that. Um, but there's a trust with him. And... And again, it's it's rare that that you have that. And so, you know, we he was following a guidebook that Ben had set up, and 
he knew he knew what he was doing and Nick knew what he was doing and had such a vision. Everybody that came into this had the same vision from day one for the show. And I think um, it shows. And as we, we spoke on Monday for a different reason and you were saying that this is, there's a personal element to this, which is this is the, you must have gone, not quite autobiographical, but it's a world that you know intensely well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, obviously I know, I grew up in, I was born in, uh, in London in the, in the early 60s. Uh, I, uh, I've grown up on the sort of posher end of the spectrum, so to speak, so I know these guys. Um, I've grown up with them, I've grown up, but you know, they've been around and all the rest of it. And, 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 and it's not until later and until the, the, there are certain sort of evolutions in the world and you evolve and stuff, you start to, you start to look back and, and wonder, and, and with a bit more information. And so what was interesting to me about, it was about this, a lot of what was interesting to me about this was to write about, you know, friendship within that world, that, and, and this particular friendship that had, a, had massive repercussions, no, not, not many of them positive. I think the phrase you used was two posh English guys blowing, fucking up the world. Yes. So that's interesting to me. Um, uh, it's, just, it's just an interesting... It's, it, it's, a, it's an interesting way to look at it for me, and it felt like it was also, weirdly enough, in the environment and all the rest of it, kind of a fresh way, or, or something that hadn't really been done before it, it, again. With it, it's a show that, that takes has a critical eye of that, I think, but not an editorial one. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was fascinating, and it did feel kind of local and... and, uh, and uh, and uh, so it was personal on that level. It was also personal on the on, on the production level. You know, Damien and I set out. Um, uh, you know, I think we actually articulated that it would. Wouldn't it be great to make a show about friendship with a bunch of friends? And so that's sort of how we cultivated the the group that that, that we sort of built around us. Um, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it made it a, just a, a really fascinating and sort of joyful process. I mean, obviously, you, you have had the producer's title before. This feels like the first thing that you've been in at the birth of. What's the experience like of wearing both hats? It's, it's fun. Um, it's fun. Uh, I think they are two different parts of the brain. Um, and I, but, you know, was there very early on developing it with Alex. And all the, uh, the two or three years that it took us to get it, to screen, partly delayed by COVID, but through casting process and, and location scouts and recce's, all the things you would expect a producer to do and, um, and hiring heads of department and everything was, is, is, is great fun. It's, it's great fun to have a bit more control over, over the vision of something. And it's also fun to have that um, sort of collegiate feel where you collaborate with a group of people in the making of something it's fun being an actor too when you're asked to join a project when all that hard work has been done and you're the little cherry that gets dropped on the top of the cake and everyone gets excited when you all walk through the door for the read through and <laughs> actors bring all their energy and and you read the project and I've been on that side on the producer side too when you see all the actors 20 years ago when I was producing films with my brother but when the actors walked in, it's like, God, there's power there. There's enormous power of that moment when the actors walk in. It's the first time it feels real. It's the first time this, this thing is now alive and can happen. So I don't underestimate that 
for a second. Um, and then just during, once you get filming, you know, there can be too many cooks and you've got to allow the director to be the director. Mm. Alex was the showrunner and was there every day alongside the director. And then, you know, I just had to find my childlike self, you know, to come down to Anna's level when I was working. <laughs> um, so uh, we, you know, there is a degree of, you have to retain that playfulness as an actor. So you do have to go into that sort of playful place and um, it's very hard to do that with Anna but we found it somehow <laughs> and, um, and then that's just that's just that's just the joy of acting is when you, you okay now let's play this thing and play is the is the opposite word let's play this thing now let's do it so much fun um, and I will say you know we Damien did actually do the work of producing and we would do, when we were doing notes calls on the cuts, everything was on Zoom. And the first cut we, we gave notes on, there was like a, a couch in the back of just a bunch of people sitting on the couch. And, you, and it was kind of hard to see. And then all of a sudden we're like looking closely and there's Damien sandwiched in with the editors, with everybody there for the studio and network notes. And he did that on every cut. Yeah, just in case you thought this was a vanity project. Yeah. It, <laughs> no, he, from day one, he, it was there and did the work. And then it's fun returning to that role in post, actually. Mm. You, know, that, you know, and again, you can have too many cooks. Alex and Nick there every day. And then Lauren and myself and others, Patrick Spence, and come in. And then you are that third eye. Well, the fresh set of eyes, which is critical to any post-production process, you know, and the edits and everything. And so actually, it's not helpful if you're there anymore. You know, so you come in and you can offer a fresh look. It's, it's, not, enjoyable. it's not helpful to have an actor who's producer, who's more, who's, who it's sort of obvious that he's protecting his own part. He, he does none of that. He actually is able to have a sort of crop tosser's view of the, of the whole show. Uh, in fact, that is actually all I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> following yourself around the screen like a baby. <laughs> Fascinated with your own image. Oh, you're going, you're going over there. <laughs> so, so, Ben, I think, the, I can't remember the first time I read, I think Mincemeat was the first one I came to of yours, and it was a while back. I don't know when Mincemeat was first published, but it's a oh, while gosh, back. Now. 15 years ago, I yeah. yeah. And then all those years, absolutely nothing happened on screen whatsoever, the books came out, and then suddenly you've got SAS Rogue Heroes, you've got this... Uh, you got Mincemeat made into a film. Um, so I guess there's, there's a demand for these stories which either, either just came upon you. Or how, how does it feel to suddenly be a source of IP? Well, or... It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's very weird. I mean, it's, you know, it's buses. You wait for years and then they all come along at once. But I do think there's a... <laughs> Spy stories are complicated. They're, they're not very simple. They're, they're, they are full of complexity and, and so on. And I think that's why sort of novelists... And spies, there's a link between novel writing and, 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 and screenwriting and spying because you're imagining a sort of whole world, and that's usually the world, if you write non fiction, that is sort of dominated by novel writers. It's the world of loyalty and love and betrayal and adventure and romance. But in a sort of spy story, if there's enough evidence, uh, it's all true. And so, therefore, that gives it a huge extra weight, I think. And I think there's something about the sort of multi part episodic telling of a spy story that really works because it's, it's 
I mean, Operation Mincemeat is slightly different because that is an operation. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. But if mincemeat wasn't real, no one, no would, one would have made it up. It's an absurd story. So these are works, exactly. So, so they're sort of acts... Uh, spying is about imagination. It's about imagining yourself into a role. And so, it, so peeling away the layers of character and complexity and disloyalty and, and loyalty that in, are involved in these works brilliantly over... A set, of, a set of episodes. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I guess that these, these stories are being sort of picked up now is because our hunger for television that produces the sort of stories that would, eventually, would have originally have been in novels, I think, that, that are told to you in chapters, structured chapters that sort of bring you with the narrative and take you along. And I think that's why this works triumphantly for television. In a way, you could never have made a feature film out of this, I don't think. It's, it's just too interesting. Well, also, you, well, but, but, <laughs> but no, but, that, but that's why you're, that's, and you're very keen that everyone knows you're a non-fiction historian. You're very keen for everyone to know that. But your, your history books read like capers. That's, that's what you're so clever at. You, you make them very entertaining. They read like novels. And that's why they're so adaptable. But I think that's partly because spies are, in a way, novelists. But your thing is you get to the character. Oh. Uh, it also attracts these extraordinary characters, yeah. these, these very strange people. I mean, I've never been sure whether spying makes you mad or whether you have to be slightly cracked already to go in for it. But, yeah. but so it's that level of sort of strange, unpredictable human behaviour, which is, of course, key to any drama, key to any novel, and key to any non-fiction narrative book that works. Anna's a spy. <laughs> Well, we'll say in praise of Alex as well. I think, you know, in spite of what Ben says, this is actually this is a pretty sort of unwieldy story. It goes everywhere, and it goes over a long period of time. It's not a natural choice at all for a film or a TV show, unless you do something very clever with it, which Alex has done, which is trust that the audience is going to be clever enough to jump around back and forth between eras, and centre it around. This, the, the, this incredible, sort of slightly elusive four days in Beirut. And he's, he's done that brilliantly. The, the, I don't think the novel lends itself naturally. This particular one of yours mm. doesn't structurally lend itself at all naturally mm. to a film. It, it's a sprawling, mm. big novelistic Over work. a long, long period. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was wondering if the character of Lily was in some way actually the uh, interpretation of Ben, that he's the person who observes this all and then pulls <laughs> oh, it Oh, I feel a bit weird he... now. Oh, yes, I feel a bit strange too. It's quite nice, but... Um... <laughs> How okay. do you find Lily? I mean, do you, do you think it's a, it's a valid... Um, actually, well, Ben, I was thinking more in terms of kind of well, the role of... Well, Lily is character. partly true. I mean, there is, there, is a, there is a character called Jane Sismore. You mm. can see her slightly older in this story, but she was... She was a key investigator in MI6. Philby was utterly terrified of her uh, and indeed tried to and successfully did destroy her career. That doesn't sort of come into the story. But, but so, so this is not a completely invented character. And I, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, but, but you do need someone, and if it, either it's my voice as the writer of the book or it's Lily t taking you through the investigation because it's, it is a sort of... It's not a whodunit, it's a kind of why done it. Um, not to give too much away, but, but, but so, so the, the central element, the, the central conundrum is set up right in the first moment of the, of the series. And you're gripped in the film by trying to, in the show, by trying to work out why. 
What, what, what is the human cog? What is the motivation? Who, who is trying to do what in this story that brings us to this point? And that's a neat summation just as the clock hits four flashing red zeros. So um, if you'd care to join me in thanking our panel for joining us. C21's Content London took place last week with senior executives, producers, writers and talent from all around the world convening in the UK capital to get a glimpse of the hottest new shows, put together deals for those in development and discuss the latest trends and industry issues. Among those delivering keynotes was Chris Rice, co-founder and co-chief executive of Fifth Season, the CJ E&M owned producer and distributor formerly known as Endeavour Content whose credits include Tokyo Vice, Killing Eve, Normal People and The Morning Show. He spoke to David Jenkinson about the evolution of fifth season to date and where he aims to take the company next and shared his vision for the future of the global content business plus his belief that while a struggling stock market may put pressure on programme budgets it might also open more co-production opportunities. Would you give a big welcome to Chris Rice? Hi, thank you. It's always felt to me that the stuff that you get involved in, you've done with a sort of an agent's eye. So clearly that background on how you got to these places, you have got drawn on a very broad experience and a, 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 and a broad range of people to get yourselves in position on all the, these shows in a very different way. But Chris, can we go back to just explaining how this um, came from WME into, um, into what it is now, Fifth Season, which is a very different company, but it did have a trajectory that which ran across the whole piece. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, my personal background and, and my business partner, Graham Taylor's background, uh, we were both agents at WME. Um, you know, ultimately, of the, I think, 230 employees now at Fifth Season, maybe only six or seven have that background. So the, the, the kind of the DNA of the company um, is, is somewhat baked in agency, but also, you know, of course, very yeah. much not. Yeah. Um, and Endeavor, which is the parent company of WME, is still one of our main shareholders, still a strategic partner, um, and, you know, something we're, we're very um, pleased about. You know, they're, they're a fantastic strategic partner. So, yeah, our business today, um, uh, you know, is, is very much that of a production business, a distribution business. Um, it's somewhat unique. It doesn't mirror, uh, you know, the US studios, the sort of Sony's and, and Lionsgate's and the, and the like. Um, it also doesn't really mirror the sort of European, UK distributors quite as much. Um, you know, we are uh, on the movie side. Um, we make about a dozen movies a year, either as producer or financier or both. Um, we have a thriving documentary business, again, either as a financier or a producer, both in documentary films as well as series. Um, we have a, a distribution business which is based out of the UK and, and run by Francis Fraser here, um, where we do uh, a lot of global international shows, um, you know, ranging back from when it started to you know, The Night Manager through to you know, Killing Eve and Normal People, Conversations with Friends, a great business out of Australia and Canada, uh, a, a growing non-English language business in distribution. Um, we have a US television studio where we make uh, 10, 10, 11 shows a year. Um, things like Severance and Tokyo Vice and Life and Beth, which was Amy Schumer's recent show. Um, and uh, what have I missed? Um, we're, we're building more of a kind of um, uh, 
investments into other production companies' business. That's been, that's been the last sort of three years of growth. So we have invested in maybe three uh, production companies in the UK. Um, we've done one in Canada, one in Australia, one in, in Scandinavia, and that's certainly a growing part of our business, which is probably more um, akin to the kind of traditional distributors. So that, that's the sort of overview uh, of what Fifth Season is today. Um, we spun out of Endeavor at the beginning of the year, um, so our main shareholder is now a company called CJENM. Um, they are one of uh, Asia and, and Asia's largest media companies, um, largest in Korea. They produced the, the movie uh, Parasite and um, one of the largest theater owners in the world. And so a really interesting strategic partner for us um, uh, alongside Endeavor. And, what, and what's their brief to you? What do they want this to be in the long run? Look, I think our, our goal is uh, to build you know, a, a, a new independent studio um, uh, that, you know, has quite a lot of philosophical differences. Um, you know, I think we, we want to be, um, you know, the first studio sort of known for the quality of our people rather than just necessarily be a brand, a sort of faceless brand or, or um, uh, you know, or, or be known for our content, although obviously we want that too. But we certainly culturally try to put our people, um, uh, you know, first and, and uh, you know, want to build a place that people can kind of show up and be themselves. And um, we think that's where the best work comes from. And also where you create a culture um, of doing that, that you also then, you know, that's a culture that artists, creators, and certainly the best um, writers and, and, and talent and directors and so on want to you know, want to be. So that's, that's very much our goal. And I think when CJ invested in us, they were, you know, excited to go on that journey of building, um, you know, building a major studio. Um, and I think, you know, we've always had, we've always had a bit more of a global viewpoint than, you know, I'm, than, than most companies based in the US. I think we built, you know, the foundations of our television business, um, you know, were, you know, were shows like The Night Manager and, and these kind of, you know, co-productions. The foundation of our film business was independent film that by its very nature is kind of more, uh, you know, more global in its talent base. So, you know, that's sort of been baked in our DNA from the beginning. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, again, the roots of working inside an agency where you're trying to put together projects uh, you know, we were putting together maybe 70 movies a year through, through the group um, and maybe, you know, a dozen or two dozen television series a year. You, you learn a lot of tools of how to maybe lean into those, you know, more difficult projects or, or things. You know, Tokyo Vice is a great example. It's a, you know, it's a big budget, you know, movie star, movie director driven show that's 100% shot in Tokyo and 50% Japanese language and sort of the idea of doing, you know, that's not, that wasn't a no-brainer when we bought that book six years ago. And I think we're just always excited by leaning into those more difficult things, um, you know, or trying to find different ways to put things together. And is that what links the, sh the shows and the companies that you aim to back? If you were to uh, have, have a definition criteria for the sort of work and the sort of people that you want to get involved with, what does that look like? What, what's your sort of, what's your character if you were to describe yourself as a business? I think we do, I think we do always look for um, things of 
bigger scale, perhaps. Although, you know, a show, um, a show that we distribute um, called Normal People would be a sort of great example of how, you know, that, that there's something, it doesn't necessarily always mean big budget or ginormous movie stars or, you know, they're both, um, uh, you know, both the leads in that were kind of discovered during the show, but you had Lenny Abramson doing it and Element Pictures, who are obviously a phenomenal producer, and it was just, you know, and a, a even though um, in different hands it could have been very parochial, um, you know, in Lenny's hands it was, you know, these very kind of universal themes, and, and you know, certainly that show has traveled all around the world and, and done incredibly well. So, um, you know, I think, uh, some, I think sometimes people think of us as just wanting to do the, you know, 15 to 20 million dollar an episodes kind of ginormous TV series, which is, you know, probably 50 plus percent of our, um, of our business. But it's, yeah, it's filmmaker driven, um, movie star driven, uh, you know, global pieces, whether, whether small or big budget. Before we start talking a little bit about the sort of the, the, the trends that are at large in the business that you think are going to be important going forward, are there, are there current shows or upcoming shows that you think are very typical of the sorts of things that you do want to do next or now? What, 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 and is it changing? Has it, has it changed over the past year or two? I don't... I, I think what... We're, we, are, we are really driven to try and find things that are original. I think that excites us. We're, we're never looking for, you know, the next, this show, right? And, and, you know, our slate, whether it be something like Tokyo Vice, which is built off a book and probably was developed for five years and, and sort of put together very slowly, or, or um, you know, something like Severance, which was a spec script that we found. You know, I think we're open to wherever that might come from. You know, we are, we are driven to, you know, to try and find things from fantastic writers that are you know, A-plus writers. But then you know, Severance was a spec script. And you know, the writer, this was the first thing that was ever produced. So you know, it's, it's, um, you know, when we you know, got on board um, Killing Eve, you know, similar kind of, you know, Phoebe had just had, um, Fleabag had just aired in the UK, but hadn't become Fleabag yet. And, Obviously, doing a drama um, is a different, you know, a, a totally different thing. And, and, you know, just the quality of the script in both the case of Severance and, and Killing Eve just jumped out. So it's not always about having a package to, to start with, yeah. you know. Um, but certainly trying to build, you know, an undeniable, you know, package by the time we take things to market is always a goal. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that history of packaging those things together does help when you find yourself in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly, um, you know, having come from an agency where you see not just what talent need, but what all of the different people, whether it be lawyers or managers, or, you know, how the whole system works sort of behind the screen, that helps create a process that becomes user-friendly to everybody. And that's, that's certainly, that was certainly one of the goals we had when we launched um, the company, you know, five and a bit years ago, was how could we try and make an experience that was, you know, whether it's on the distribution side, an experience that was better for a British producer or an Australian producer or really from any country that we're working in now. Um, you know, how could we kind of go beyond what a tra traditional distributor does um, and try to help, you know, advise on casting or, you know, 
build co-productions, and, and I think that's, that was you know, one of the foundations of our business, and you know, certainly that kind of approach um, you know, was born out of agenting. Understanding it, yeah. Um, just talking a little bit about um, the UK market, yeah. because you are expanding the business here quite dramatically. Um, can you talk, talk a little bit about, about the developments that you've made in the UK and what they're designed to do as you build out the, the company internationally? Yeah, and obviously being um, a Brit myself, you know, this has just always been an incredibly important place. And, and you know, the origins of our business were a lot of British shows in co-production um, you know, with, with the US. But yeah, we're probably 40 people on the grounds here now. Um, we've got a lovely little, little muse house in, in Marlebone and, uh, um, you know, are gonna grow that business aggressively. We've made, you know, three production company investments here, um, Motive Pictures, Story Collective, um, uh, Ink Factory, um, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably do more. And uh, Ben Irving recently joined us from the BBC um, to both, uh, you know, both build original productions as well as, um, you know, shepherd some of the co-productions that we're doing either with the US studio but on shows that are based here or with UK talent. Um, but also the co-productions that we have with other British, British producers. Can we talk a little bit about those investments and why you think it was necess necessary to make them and, and at what scale they were? Because you're not fully acquiring these companies, you're putting some money in, or are you? What, what, what's the best shape of that for you? I think the, the, the model for us, um, you know, we've looked at acquiring mature production companies and it's certainly something we're open to doing. Um, I think we've... You know, we've we've built businesses that are kind of, you know, or whether it be you know Simon Maxwell who's running international production at Channel Four and who we'd built some co-productions with um, when he was at Channel Four, uh, you know, or or the team at Story Collective or is it Ink Factory who did The Night Manager, which is an important part of our history and, and business building. You know, I think the, the common theme is they're all focusing in that same way that I talked about on those more sort of global projects, more filmmaker-driven stuff, co-productions with the US. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's you know, that's just the, it. We've never wanted to invest in anything where we didn't think we could add value as well. I think that's always a, a measurement for us. It's not just about invest in this company so we can have distribution rights. It's like, okay, if we're gonna invest in it, and again, I think that's probably the, maybe the, the little bit of agency mentality is, you know, well, how can we actually help create flow? How can we help build packages? How can we create value in this company? Um, but I think in the long run, I think we'll, we'll probably expect to acquire them. Um, so how many ultimately. more do you want and what sorts of companies are you looking for? Um, <laughs> I, we don't. We tend to not think about it in that way. Um, what impresses you? A show that someone's made, or a, a person that runs that that business? Or yeah, it's always the person. It's always the person. I mean, the two often go together. Yeah. But I think it's, um, you know, it's 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 somebody who's got the um, the same ambition to build. It's somebody who wants to be, um, you know, wants to wants to make great shows that are going to travel around the world. I mean, it's that, it's that simple. And I think, um, you know, and then somebody who's also collaborative and, and, you know, pleasant to work with. And again, going back to that idea of the people, I think we, you know, both in, in terms of who we hire or in terms of who we try to get into business with, we want people that are pleasant.
With, <laughs> oh, with the, the financial markets and media stocks crashing as much as almost 50% in some markets, what impact does that have on anything? Does it change your strategic vision going forward? Do you have as much money? Can you spend it in the same way? And, and, and how is that pressure affecting the broader business, do you think? Look, I think um, you know, me, public media stocks are down 40-ish percent, I think, since the beginning of the year. Um, and you know, that is, that's creating some pressure. You know, we've all read lots about the pressure on various major media companies and the shifting of models. And um, you know, I think for, for us, uh, you know, we see that as much as an opportunity as a challenge. Right? Um, I don't think we've seen, and I don't think we will see, a sort of collapse in shows being ordered. I mean, it, I know it's strange to hear a Brit being optimistic, but, but you know, I think we feel unbelievably excited about what challenge can bring to a market. And, and um, you know, what that can mean is other ways to do co-productions, other opportunities at networks who maybe before were looking to fully own something or you know, own the world who now are trying out different models of co-production or, um, you know, there's, there's <coughs> we're, we are very purposefully in lots of different segments, you know, in non-scripted documentaries, um, you know, scripted TV and film because, you know, we've kind of weathered through quite a lot of cycles before and seen, okay, well, when there's a challenge here, maybe things move out of the you know, $15 million an episode TV series into the $5 million an episode TV series, or things move from scripted to non-scripted, or but into documentaries. do you see the for that being all of these big platforms spending as much money as they could to buy market share, and that, that was always going to run out at some point in the P&L, and once that market share was either achieved or not achieved, it would have gone back to a more old-fashioned model, and collaboration would have almost had to be part of the future anyway, because market share would have been achieved with that spend. I think that um, I think it's less around. I think if you didn't have a sort of looming recession and you know and, and stock market problems, I'm not sure it would have led to collaboration. I think I have always been a believer that um, you know that streamers would you know and big global media companies would start to look at. Uh, downstream exploitation in a way that they weren't when they were fully focused on growth, because there's only so much you can do. I mean, if you think, you know, if you think about the past, you know, where launching, you know, a new network, you know, whatever Channel Four when I was a kid or Channel Five when I was a young adult, like that was a, you know, that's a huge amount of work <laughs> and effort that goes into launching a channel. You know, most of these media companies have had to do that in. 100 plus markets simultaneously over a two to three year period. So, of course, you become just focused on executing that and driving growth, and then with so much expansion of production costs and, you know, another another thing that sort of, you know, was one of the theses. We had sort of two theses um, eight-ish years ago when we started laying the seeds for this business. You know, one of them was the full merger of film and television as a process. Um, and the other was you know, that the US would open up to, um, you know, to, to content that wasn't shot in America, set in America with American characters, and that, that there would be more opportunities. Um, so you know, I, think, I think, yeah, as, as we're starting to see, whether it's Netflix 
you know, moving into AVOD models or, um, you know, or, or, or kind of more openness of other media companies to start thinking about how they do windowing, uh, you know, on the movie side or, or on the television side. Um, you know, I think the business will trend towards, you know, what it was, which is, you know, ultimately managing brands um, inside these platforms and trying to exploit those brands, whether a TV show or a movie, through all the different windows and through lots of ancillaries. Um, Isn't it interesting? I mean, we probably wouldn't have had that conversation 18 months ago. It really wasn't about that then, was it? So it's almost, it feels like it's almost going back to those, those core roots of collaboration, windowing, co-production, shared risk, multiple, multiple outlets. Do you see any problems in that? What, what are going to be the big challenges for people to start collaborating because we're now all sharing rights across, across the business? I mean, look, that's, we might not have had the conversation 18 months ago, but it's been a conversation we've been having every month for the whole of our existence because our business has always been rooted in co-productions and because our, you know, on, our, on the distribution side of our business, we've represented um, you know, other media companies and other distributors and um, you know, because I think because of our unique kind of position in the market, that's always been a big piece of our business. We've always had conversations with major streamers and networks about, well, here's what maybe we could do. Why don't we take this show and do something with it in this country because we think we could create value for you, um, which again, maybe is more of a sort of agenting mindset, but it's, it's um, yeah, it's always been a part of our business. And I think for, um, I think for everybody, actually, it creates opportunity. Mm. I think it creates opportunity at the networks and the major media companies if they're having, you know, if they're trying to do, you know, more with less dollars, that it actually unlocks the ability to do much more. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great opportunities for producers because you've suddenly got the marketplace more open up, up to yeah. different ways of doing things, which for, which for you know, odd projects or challenging projects or whatever just actually gives, in a way, more opportunity. Yeah, it feels exciting, doesn't it? Um, your company's well-known for movie star-driven shows. What's the secret to attaching talent and building these kinds of brands? Um, I mean, I, I think I hit on that a little bit already with, with just that knowledge of what surrounds, you know, great talent, right, in terms of, of you know, it, obviously, ultimately, it's having great IP um, and having a trusted team, you know, whether that's a great producer, um, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, whether it's a, a great team inside a studio, it's, it's um, you know, it's talent being comfortable with, you know, with, with um, you know, who, who's making something. Um, you know, for, for actors, Whose directing is incredibly important, but you know ultimately it always comes down to great material too. You know whether that be you know a book, you know Nine Perfect Strangers, which we produced. You know started off just with you know with with Nicole, um, Bruna Papandrea, and and us buying that book and building off there and getting momentum off that. Um, you know and obviously Nicole and uh, Nick Kidman and. Bruno Papandrea had a, a relationship with Liam Moriarty, the author from Big Little Lies. So sometimes it can be that seed, and then you know that just creates you know creates the momentum. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think I'm not sure there's a sort of useful secret 
there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> in, in terms of what's happening in terms of the structural change with, with streamers and the platforms, because in many ways they have set the tone um, for the past few years. Mm. Um, what's your thought about them moving into ABOD and the other changes that are take, taking place, like fast channels and the sort of the, the changing technology and the, I suppose, the audience experience of coming to terms with a slightly different way of watching content? What, what's the does it mean that a different sort of content will be made for those markets, different genres or different approaches, and what are the threats and what are the opportunities? Um, I, think, I think that it is, as a seller uh, and a producer of content, you know, we obviously, are, and one that's independent and, and not only looks to sell to as many buyers as possible you know, in, in you know, our home markets of US and UK, but, but really ever, anywhere around the world. Um, you know, the more buyers, the better, the more ways of doing things, the more different approaches they have, whether it be uh, you know, having AVOD channels and SVOD channels and kind of you know, multiple brands that live on, the better, because it's just more places to sell. And um, you, know, you want uh, you know, the, you want different types of places as well, right? Because that gives them the greatest breadth of, of creativity. Um, so, so, you know, nothing but positive feelings about uh, these companies trying all of these different models. I think also, you know, certainly in the US, um, and I think the UK has been perhaps a little bit better as an industry about being aggressive about trying to change this. But in, in the US, there's very much a coastal focus. Um, and you know, so fast channels and other, you know, other business approaches are a way to kind of reach that audience that maybe wasn't subscribing to you know, a premium SVOD service and was probably more focused on you know, broadcast networks or basic cable. And, and um, you know, so again, the more audience you can reach, right, the more um, you know, the more that unlocks creativity. So, and you've been involved in some very impressive <laughs> franchises. There's some really exciting content in there. Which which show or franchise that you don't have do you wish you had had? Um, oh, there's. I mean, there's loads. I, I we were just talking about it at lunch, but I love the show The Great. I think that's just. I love the fusion. Mm. Um, you know, and Killing Eve had this too. Um, you know, that sort of drama structure with, you know, with comedic overtones, obviously Succession does that as well. Um, I really, so, they, you know, those, all of those shows, The Bear, sim, you know, I think they all have different numbers of the dial of the comedy, probably the great, that has the, that has the, the, the most turned up there. Um, I love those shows, yeah. So 12 months from now when we're sitting here, what will you have done different and how, what will the business look like? And is there anything getting in the way of you taking things to where they need to be a year from now? Um, not really. Look, I think that there is, we hit on the main point of that there's challenges without question, but actually that creates opportunities. So, you know, I think, it, I, I hope in 12 months time, you know, our business has, has you know, continued its growth. Um, you know, I think we'll have, you know, yeah, a bigger, a, a bigger UK presence um, and, um, uh, hopefully made some other great shows. Cool. Chris, thank you for spending Good time stuff. with us. Uh, Pleasure. Chris Rice, thank you. Chris Rice speaking with David Jenkinson at C21's Content London. 
There'll be more from the event on our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday and in the podcast next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.